Welcome to the Philanthropy Australia podcast, a destination for those who are interested in the issues, the debates and the thinking about philanthropy. In each episode, we'll bring you a short discussion about the issues engaging the nation's philanthropists and those in the for-purpose sector, whether it's a discussion about what it means to be a philanthropist in Australia, guidance to improve your giving practice, or information about Philanthropy Australia's signature thought-leading events, this podcast is for you. So it strikes me that in a sense what's occurring here is that the treatment actually alters the receptivity to the potential change of behaviour. Yeah, it it makes you... uh, um, I mean, they talk about integration following the therapy. And, you know, from personal experience, because, you know, Tanya and I have both experienced this overseas, it takes a number of months to really integrate what's happening because it is so, it is so uh, exceptional. When you say you've both experienced it overseas, you've both taken the, the, the treatment? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, that's the reason why we set up the charity to begin with was because it had such a um, life-changing, um, profound effect on, on our resetting our brains, I guess, mm. and resetting and raising our consciousness. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, so as I say, profound experience, and it's that feeling of connectedness which is actually the first step to uh, uh, remission, hopefully, for the person uh, with depression. So as a first step then, as part of the ongoing treatment, do you then have to keep having it, or is it enough to keep returning to the therapist after that initial session to explore the reframe uh, yeah. sense of self. What, what will normally happen is you, you, you'll have one or two sessions of uh, the psilocybin experience. After, after each, uh, not immediately, but just after you've had a chance to really start to, to assimilate what's happened, there'll be some integration ser- sessions with the therapist. Where the therapist is really testing and probing you in terms of what you've experienced and the impact on you. Uh, but not leading you. After that, uh, what they're finding in the trials is that uh, a large proportion of the patients go into remission. Some immediately, some over time. Now, how long that remission is going to last going forward, we, we actually don't know. Uh, it may well be that uh, people need to have, you know, in quotes, a top up after 12 months or 24 months. For some people, some people may not need that. Uh, that's an uncertainty, but the powerful nature of this is that actually we're seeing very high remission rates amongst people who go through this experience. Mm. So let's talk about the medical misgivings about it or the perceived dangers around it as a treatment option. Yeah, so these medicines are actually extremely safe. Uh, Some of the psychiatrists on our board and some of the leading psychiatrists in the world describe them as stunningly safe. And in the 50s and 60s, these medicines were used for over 40,000 patients to treat them from a variety of conditions, including depression, anxiety, um, broken down relationships, addictions, post-traumatic stress disorder, with enormous success. The medicines have very low toxicity and they're also non-addictive, contrary to what many people think. They think, oh, drugs, drugs must be addictive. What actually happens with the psilocybin in particular is as you have more experiences of it, the effect diminishes. 
So it's not the sort of thing that you want to do every day or every week mm. okay. <laughs> because it takes a long time to integrate, as, as Peter has mentioned. And often the improvement in a person's condition can take six to 12 months um, of integration, which can, a lot of integration, of course, also happens on your own. You're just looking at the world in a whole different way because mm. you've had that reset of your brain and and really that bypass of your default mode network that occurs when you ingest uh, the dose of the medicine is really what helps you to reframe, reset, reinvent <laughs> and review your life in a different way and feel a greater sense of, of gratitude and of connection um, and also of forgiveness so that a lot of people who have had traumatic events in their life, and most of us have, um, are able to, to go back and and find acceptance and a sense of forgiveness um, for those events as well, which is very important for healing. So the, the trick around a lot of this, though, is making sure that the dosage is correct and yep. that the drug itself is administered in a clinically safe environment so that mm. everyone knows what's being given That's exactly in what, right. what proportion. Mm. So there, there may well be people who listen to this go, oh, gee, that sounds like something I need. Mm. In Australia, what are the options? There are no mm. legal options for pursuing this, are there? No, well, so one of the really um, heartbreaking parts of this work is that since we've launch this charity, we receive an enormous amount of emails, phone calls, letters from people, either themselves or, you know, they have children or parents who are in desperate need, who've tried every other type of, you know, medicine or other type of psychiatric, uh, psychological support and all different types of modalities and just have hit the wall and they just don't feel that they can go on and they're desperate. Mm -hmm to access these medicines. So at this point in time, of course, in Australia, we don't have a therapeutic um, approved solution for this yet, uh, which is unfortunate, but something we're working hard to, to do. And so people then either, if they can afford it and have the means, can go overseas to countries where these treatments are legally available, or they will go into the underground um, and find a, a supervised way of, of, you know, accessing this sort of treatment underground. Now, obviously, that has its risks, which is why we are advocating for um, making sure that these medicines can be therapeutically administered in clinics and hospitals, you know, with top medical support. So it's speaking of that, then, mm. so obviously um, there are two streams to this. One of them is obviously an advocacy piece. Yeah. The second part is really trying to offer support and guidance um, to enable potential practitioners to to be accredited and, and yes, and, and, yeah. So how how is that going, and how important is it for the phase three of the trials overseas to be basically um, showing those very positive results? for you to get that extra level of momentum here? Mm. Well, there's, there's two things there. I mean, uh, with the phase three results overseas, they're probably they're probably two years away. Mm. And then, you, then it needs to go through the FDA approval mechanisms. Uh, but it, if it gets uh, FDA approval, you would expect Australia to follow relatively quickly. 
Now, following relatively quickly isn't actually enough because you, you, you need it to be not only legally available in Australia, but actually available. Mm. And to make it available, it needs to be rolled out right across Australia. And you, and you need people with expertise who can actually administer this sort of th therapy. In Australia, there's also uh, a special access scheme which enables uh, physicians to apply to the government for approval in relation to specific patients. And that's the scheme which medical cannabis, cannabis has been using. Mm. And it's now very efficiently administered by the government. Mm. So that's a potential way of actually providing this therapy before it, f it goes through all the, the final approvals in America. Are you pursuing, lobbying, talking to people about that? It, it's something that we're working on at the moment. And it, you know, we obviously need to do it in a really careful, well thought through way. Mm. Because you know we want to make sure that uh, anybody who has this therapy has it in the right circumstances, and they're appropriately screened by psychiatrists. But for people who are desperate and have no other obvious solution, uh, this form of therapy could be very prospective. So you've got a big international conference mm. in Melbourne. Yeah, November twenty twenty. Yeah. Uh, mm. So how big a piece of awareness building is that going to be and do you have any expectation around the argument having shifted slightly? Oh yes, yeah. So the International Summit on, and it's called the International Summit on Psychedelic Therapies mm -hmm. for Mental Illness and we already have confirmed a number of the leading researchers, scientists, psychiatrists, lawmakers from around the world to be here in Melbourne in mid-November. And that summit will be preceded by a two-day therapist training workshop. So in early 2020, we are bringing over one of the leading psychologists from Imperial College who's mm. worked on the trials over there to work with Mind Medicine Australia mm. to develop the curriculum for the therapist training program. And so the first two days of that will occur before the conference and then it will roll out in full in 2021 so that we do have um, a pool of therapists available to work with these therapies. And the interesting thing is at the moment already, we already have like a waiting list <laughs> of psychiatrists, psychologists, drug and alcohol counsellors, social workers and others who are saying, well, we want to do the training now <laughs> sort of thing. And of course, you know, the training's not quite available yet, but it will be a best practice training program because we'll be working with the people from Imperial College, the California Institute of Integrative Studies who have a leading course in the world to develop a curriculum that is I guess suitable for the Asia Pacific region, so Australia and the Asia Pacific region. I think that is going to stir up further interest but we also have um, a huge awareness building program taking place at the moment. So for example we've been screening Trip of Compassion which is an Israeli documentary and these screenings are very important because the Israeli documentary follows three people who have severe and complex post-traumatic stress disorder in Israel through the actual sessions in the room. So you actually, <coughs> as audience, sit in the room with the two therapists and the patient, follow them through their three MDMA-assisted therapy sessions to complete remission. So it's, um, it's a very confronting documentary but it actually is very uplifting in the end because you can see the power of these therapies. I mean these people have tried everything for decades. Mm. Um, 
So we'll have a, a series of other information events in partnership with various organisations. We'll be talking to lots of different medical groups, allied health practitioners, public health practitioners, lawmakers, policymakers, the government, and of course general consumers. I mean, it's very important to educate the public to understand what is available to them because everyone needs to know that there are other options than what is being provided currently by their general practitioners. And, and of course, you know, we, we will be talking with lots of general practitioners <laughs> um, and hoping that um, they join this movement to make sure that people's suffering can be alleviated because that's what, and why Peter and I are doing this is because as Peter may have mentioned already, we've set up, you know, between us, this is our fifth charity. Mm. And so we wouldn't be setting up another charity. We were divesting our portfolios <laughs> until this came along and sort of happened to us in a way. And we felt that it would be, um, just had to be made accessible. And, and Dr. Simon Longstaff, who's um, on our board, who's yeah. Yeah. head of the Centre of Ethics, ethics. Ethics, yeah. Yeah. he says it's unethical for Australians not to have access to these medicines. So, and we believe that. <laughs> so from that point mm. of view, and mm. given your experiences with other charities, mm. what's the missing piece here that you think will actually progress this into more of a mainstream discussion? Uh, well, well f firstly, I mean, the context favours that mainstream discussion because I think it's becoming people are becoming more and more aware of the fact that the current medical health system that we have isn't actually delivering in terms of reducing the terrible mental health statistics that we have. And it's not helping a large number of people. So the context is right for this discussion. The second important thing is we're seeing a lot of scientific results coming, coming from overseas with the overseas trials, and we'll have trials taking place in Australia soon as well. Uh, the third thing is that uh, as people start to see the impact on Australians with mental health problems of these therapies, the news will get around really quickly that, that they can actually be effective for a large number of people. And that will cause people with mental health conditions and uh, their loved ones to start speaking to their general practitioners about it. And suddenly the work, word gets around, the momentum is there and uh, there is pressure in the system to change. But it's going to take an enormous amount of effort, uh, frankly, from everyone interested in this form of therapy to get the system to adopt it and make it available to people who need it. And it's just because, you know, systems, they're, they're like, you know, the proverbial oil tankers. You know, they take a bit of effort to sort of shift course. But once they've shifted course and gained momentum, then they're powering away. It is the interesting thing about the these drugs in particular um, because of the, as you mentioned, the, the stigma around them and especially, you know, the residual idea of these drugs in the Vietnam War and mm. you know, all that sort of stuff. And for a generation of people yeah. who were either exposed to them or who were parents of <laughs> children who were exposed to them, there is this kind of still a very suspicious mindset about, mm. about them being far more damaging than yeah. rehabilitative. No, and I mean, the, the tragedy of that is that when Nixon, um, you know, did the war on drugs, um, that was indiscriminate. So he didn't differentiate between the relative harms of different drugs. So actually the most 
damaging drug of all, of course, and has been shown to be. We have a table of relative drug harms that has been done in Australia just recently by Australian researchers. Shows the most dangerous drug to self and others by far is alcohol. And then you have, you know, cigarettes pretty high up that list too. Right down the other end of the spectrum, you have psilocybin and MDMA. Um, and so this is an education um, challenge and, and we need to do our best to educate people um, about that. But the unfortunate thing is, and Professor David Nutt, who's one of our ambassadors from Imperial College, says that that piece of legislation by Nixon was the worst example of medical and scientific censorship in history. Mm. Because if you think about what has happened in the last 40 years, we now have an epidemic of loneliness, social isolation, depression and anxiety being triggered by a whole range of different things, including the acceleration of technology, including anxiety and uncertainty around climate change and the future of jobs and the automation that's affecting that. But if we would have kept progressing with these mental health medicines um, and therapies back, back then, then who knows, we might be in a very different position now. Mm. So we all have to be very open um, and we all have to be asking the powers that be to make sure that all of us um, can live the most uh, meaningful and contributing lives possible and that everyone who, no matter of their station in life, could have access to treatments that are going to help them in, sometimes in the order of six to eight times, the current treatments. And these current treatments have not altered in decades. Mm. So there's been no innovation in this space. <laughs> the other thing, by the way, just very quickly, is worth it's worth mentioning is that when we explain psychedelic therapy, there, there are often two groups of people. There's the older group who actually were around in the 60s and they participated in taking psychedelics when it was legal and they did it responsibly. When we explain why this is so impactful as a therapy, they get it immediately. There's another group who never, who may be younger, never participated in, in taking psychedelics. Uh, they've been brought up, as you've just said, on the basis that all drugs are bad. Mm. And their immediate reaction is one of, of cautiousness, mm. scepticism. Mm. And we have to work harder with those people and just encourage them to look at the science and the trial results and to get away from that prejudice and stigma. And the good news is that I think more and more people are prepared to do that because they recognise that we need a paradigm shift. So they're broadening their minds. Okay, so one final question. So what is the next step, whether it's a small one or a large one, what do you see as the next step that is either A, achievable, or B, desirable in the next six to 12 months? Well, ongoing awareness, so we really get it out there so that people are asking questions, trying to understand this, looking at the research material. There's a massive amount of articles in mainstream media from overseas that's available now to understand this, that's the first thing. Mm. Second thing, as Tanya mentioned, is to start work on the curriculum for the therapist training course and uh, the work on the conference. But the third thing which is really exciting and which actually is a game changer for Australia is this. We now have two centres of excellence in the world in psychedelic medicine, one at Johns, Johns Hopkins in America, one at Imperial College in London. We want Australia to have its own centre of excellence, so you, en you end up with a global triangle of three major centres of excellence. It's something that's relevant not just to Australia but to Asia Pacific. We could become the centre of excellence for our part of the world. For that to happen, we need 
governments to be supportive and we need to get the uh, uh, university system behind it. Now actually the university systems uh, is already very interested in this concept because they love research. We need government to step up and make this happen. We actually, in our Royal Commission submission, the Victorian Royal Commission submission, we suggested that actually this was an important stepping stone for the Victorian government. Mm -hmm. uh, that could be a major announcement over the next six to nine months. Could be, will be, you'll have mm -hmm. all. Will be, I'm an optimist well, here. Well, we're determined, so <laughs> the answer is, is will be. And, you know, personally, we're prepared to put quite a bit of money behind it yeah. because we believe in it so strongly and we're sure that there'll be a number of other philanthropists, philanthropists who yeah. want to do the same. So we just mm. need a partnership between government, the university sector, clinics, and, uh, or a university, uh, a government, and the federal government and philanthropists to make this happen. And boy, wouldn't that be exciting because it would actually say that all of us are interested in actually changing this paradigm to make sure that we minimize the suffering from mental illness in Australia. Mm. No more talk, let's do something. That's a very good point to end. Thank you, Peter Hunt. Thank you.